mindfulness mode. It's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of a problem. The good that we can do, we must do. And you know, if I can do this, then I must do it. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. This is Bruce. It's so good to have you here. I absolutely love today's guest. I think you are going to love her as well. She offers so much for us as we move through this pandemic. So many ideas and tips and thoughts. And just listening to the episode, I think, will lift you up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here in Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, we talk about mindfulness, but we also talk about the science behind it. We talk about health. We talk about so many aspects that are connected to mindfulness. And I have a very, very interesting guest today that I'm so excited to share with you because she's a health writer. She's a science writer. She has done so many things in areas that are connected to mindfulness. And she's recently written a fantastic book called How to Be Up in Down Times, and she's written that with a couple of co-writers. We'll talk about that later. But I'm so excited to have Mitzi Purdue with me today. Mitzi, are you in mindfulness mode today? Uh, Yes, I, I feel calm. I feel happy. I feel upbeat, and I'm ready to give my all to our audience. Well, that is fantastic. So, Mitzi, what does mindfulness mean to you? I figure that... If you aren't practicing mindfulness, at least in my case, that I have all these rat races running around in my head and I don't focus and life isn't as full and rich and glorious as it could be. So I'm extremely in favor of anything that that brings calm and focus and big vision and... uh, so I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, I am a fan too, as you know, since I have the podcast. I uh, am really excited about your book because it was such an enjoyable book to read and so much great content, How to Be Up and Down Times. And you wrote it along with Mark Victor Hansen. And there's one other writer as well that you shared. Who was that other writer, Mitzi? Oh, Preston Weeks. Oh, he's such a fantastic person. But in addition to being fantastic, he's also the stepson of Mark Victor Hansen. And I think everybody knows that Mark Victor Hansen, and maybe they don't, and if not, I'm going to share it with you and spill the beans. Please do. All right. My co-author, Mark Victor Hansen, I mean, one of the, the two co-authors, Mark Victor Hansen is in the Guinness Book of World's Records for selling the most nonfiction books in the world, half a billion of them. And... Uh, He's the chicken soup for the soul guy. Yes, he is. And I interviewed him not too long ago and absolutely loved spending the time with him. And since that time, he has connected with me and said, hey, you need to interview this person and that person. And Mitzi, you're one of them. So I'm so excited to be here and be connected because of Mark. So that's that's really great. And I'm going to just share a couple more things about you, Mitzi, with Mindful Tribe. You combine the experiences of three long-time family businesses, which is quite interesting that your father co-founded the Sheridan Hotel chain and your late husband was the second generation in the poultry company that operates in more than 50 companies. It's Purdue Poultry. I would assume that's what it's called. Yeah. And you founded now your your company, is it Cirrus Farms? You got it just right. Okay. Cirrus Farms. And you founded that in 1974. And you've also founded in 2019, win this fight, stop human trafficking. And what an important, important endeavor that is. So lots to talk about today. What took you to the point where you made the decision to get involved in writing this book, Mitzi? Well, I am a writer by trade, but I got to know Mark Victor Hansen because he's active in human trafficking too. And I met him through that and we, we just sort of clicked and we, we corresponded lots and we talked lots. And along about early February, it was pretty clear to me from, I, I have friends in China and I've, you know, for about 12 years, I visited China every year to visit families that I'm fond of and that would invite me. But because of that, 
I, I had what felt to me like a distant early warning system that something really terrible was coming our way, namely COVID-19. And I asked Mark about, what if we wrote a book that would help people get through this? Because you know, we, it hadn't really, we're talking, we're talking very early February. And it, I, it, it wasn't a time yet where everybody was thinking about it. And I said, I suggested to him, you know, you're one of the most inspirational people in the world. Your stepson is a physical fitness expert and I'm a health writer. What if together we gave 40 tips and they would be short, like none would be longer than two pages, but they would help people get through an extraordinarily difficult time. And Mark said, yes, and the rest is history. We, we had 18 hour days writing and writing and writing and about three weeks later, published on Amazon. God, it's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it's so easy to digest it. And yet there's so many great suggestions and ideas. And you just keep reading and reading and reading to find more of them. And you tell some very interesting stories in the book. Would you be willing to share one of the stories that you have shared in that book? Oh, I'd like nothing better. Uh, to be up in, in down times, and this is also a mindfulness story, and, oh, I hope I don't monologue too long for you. No, but not at all. Gone. Thank you. I mean, that that's one of my, something I'm trying to correct and I fail every time because. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, uh, I'll cut in if it gets too long and I'm sure it won't. I'll just enjoy the story you're going to tell. Well, I'll do my best to be a polite guest. <laughs> but here goes. We're going to go back 2,300 years to Plato, the great philosopher. And he was teaching his students back in Athens, and his students wanted to know, what I think we all want to know, what does it take to be happy? And Plato answered that there are three things that men think will make them happy, and how about they never do, or at least long-term they never do. And so of course his students wanted to know what are those three things. Plato answered, money, power, and fame. And his students said, you know, that sounds like it would make people happy. And Plato said, nope, they don't, because you always need a bigger and bigger dose. You know, the more money you have, yeah, you know, what seemed like a fortune to you five years ago, now it's not enough. And the same thing with power and fame. So his students said, well, if money, power, and fame don't do the trick, what does? And Plato answered, truth, beauty, and goodness. Because each of those, they make you happy all by themselves, and you don't have to kill people or rob people to get more of them. So truth, beauty, and goodness make people happy. And now it's the part where I'm scared about monologuing too much, because that leads to the real story about how this plays out in real life. Permission to continue? Yes, please do. Yes, Mitzi. Okay, how does this play out in real life? <laughs> and there is a period of about a week where by complete coincidence, I read a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte and a biography of Mother Teresa. Napoleon Bonaparte, he, emperor of France, and he, you know, he had probably more wealth, power, fame than anybody in history up until then. He had territory, he had women, he had all the world's goodies that, that could come to one man. What about Mother Teresa? She had a vow of poverty. The physical possessions that she owned consisted of nothing more than three cotton saris, the, the uh, I don't want to say costume, the clothing that a poor Bengali woman would wear. And she also owned the sandals on her feet. And she spent her life taking care of the poorest of the poor you know, like lepers and AIDS, people with AIDS. I mean, she, her life was not glamorous. It was, it was a complete life of service. Now, who was happier? Napoleon with all the power, money, and fame that the world has to offer? Or Mother Teresa with her vow of poverty and serving the poor? In other words, a life, to my mind, of total goodness and, and beauty. Uh, and truth. Well, who was happier? And we don't have to guess. No. Unless you want to guess. But no, but I'll, I'll plunge on and give you the answer. Yeah. Napoleon 
At the end of his days, he's in exile in some island in the South Atlantic. And he writes that in my whole life, when I look back on my whole life, I cannot count six happy days. Oh, wow. Now, this is the man with all the world's goodies that people think they want. He wasn't a happy man. What about Mother Teresa with her vow of poverty, almost no possessions? Here's what Mother Teresa wrote looking back on her life. My life has been a feast of unending joy. So which way to go? You know, one was a taker, everything that he got, he took from other people. The good things that came Mother Teresa's way really came from being a giving person. Yeah, what a great story, and you tell it so well. And, oh, and, and that is what I got out of your book, is that you know, it's so important to be a giver. It's so important, and you you take you tell different stories, and you have so many interesting little anecdotes and so on. But really, that's what we need to to realize is that we need to be givers and to help others. And one of the things you talk about are masks, and you talk about in there how uh, a woman from Czechoslovakia said, "When I wear a face mask, I protect you." When you wear a face mask, you protect me. So there's another example of giving. I'm wearing a face mask because I want to give you a sense of security. I want to help you. It's not about me. It's about the other person. Now, I know that you have made quite a few face masks. Tell us how you came to the point of creating face masks and making them with a a little team in your own uh, apartment building. I would love to share with that. And first, I'm going to put on my hat as a science writer and why face masks are a good idea. This is me, science writer speaking, which is that, now this is not going to be true in every case, but as a general principle of medicine, it's the dose that makes the poison. So if you're with somebody who has COVID-19 or you have it, the mask, it's not going to be perfect protection. There will be little viruses that are going to escape through it, but you're going to cut down on them. And to the extent that you can cut down on them, then you're either giving it to somebody or getting it yourself. You're going to get what we call an inoculum, a dose of it. If, if you get, now just hypothetically, supposing you're standing, sitting near somebody, which actually happened to me in January, um, somebody who had it. If you're sitting near somebody and they're not wearing a mask and you're with them for a period of time, you know, these, uh, the viruses are just going back and forth. But supposing instead you're wearing a mask and you're socially distant, you, it's still you know, quite possible to get COVID-19. But if you get a lower inoculum or a lower dose of it because the person's wearing a mask and hopefully you're wearing a mask too, I mean, supposing you get 50% or 20% or 10% of the amount that you'd get if you weren't wearing a mask, the odds are you're gonna be less sick because your own ability to fight it off isn't as instantly and strongly challenged as it was or would be if you weren't wearing a mask. So I'm passionately in favor of masks. And I know there are arguments all over the place and whether you should or shouldn't. I come down pretty firmly on if you're near people wear a mask. Uh, now, there, there's, ah, this is such a complicated subject, but one other factor to consider, if you're outdoors in the sunlight and there's a little breeze, your chances of getting it from somebody who's a little bit distant from you are really small. I mean, like I've, 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 read, I've read scientific papers that say it's, you have 3% chance of getting it if you're outdoors and there's sunlight and there's a breeze and there's a little bit of distance. So I'm fine if you're out jogging and you're not gonna be near anybody and there's a breeze, it's gonna dilute the, uh, the, the virus and your chances of getting it are just so much smaller than if you're in a confined area. And at that point, yeah, wear a mask if, if you're near other people. Well, I think that's great advice, Mitzi, and uh, I, I believe that we should wear masks. I think it's very important to do what we can to protect other people, 
protect ourselves. And we just need to, to do that, I think, in this COVID environment that we live in. But on the other hand, you know, I, I see people driving alone in a car and they're wearing a mask. And um, I mean, there is nothing in the world wrong with giving yourself every chance and being as, as smart about it as you can. But the truth is where it's really needed is when you're indoors. That's when it's just essential. Outdoors, it's, um, I think there's a little more wiggle room. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, well, let me go back to uh, masks and giving. Yeah, tell us about that. Okay, I love to sew. And as a matter of fact, if I'm sewing, I'm probably worrying less about finances and jobs and you know, just all the bad relationships or my sister, my 94-year-old sister had COVID. You know, oh. when, when you've just got a whole lot to worry about, I'm, I'm so in favor of giving yourself respite from worrying. And one of my ways of respite is masks. And uh, I, I haven't counted, but I bet I'm close to 500. And ones that I've sewed myself, probably close to 300. Does, is, does, can you see or is it backwards? No, I can, this, no, I can see. Yeah, I can see your mask. Free range chickens. Very cool. Very cool. But, but I, um, Frank used to like this design. It's a Burberry design. Oh, yeah. So I sent away to Burberry in London and, and got real fabric and sewed hundreds of those. But, but here's who, who they were for. The first group, I live in a building of maybe 60 people, and we formed the Betsy Ross Brigade. Ah. Betsy Ross was, was famous uh, back at the time of the Revolutionary War, not just for sewing the American flag, but also sewing items of clothing for soldiers. She was, she was there uh, to you know, show support. Well, the Betsy Ross Brigade, and I did organize it, we decided that we knew the Sheriff's Department, there are 196 people in it, we knew that they weren't high up for receiving personal protection equipment. You know, the local hospital would be, but, but the sheriffs were a little bit further down in the uh, distribution area. And, and sheriffs were having to go out and work. I mean, because you can't just stop law enforcement. Exactly. So we made 196 masks. And, and I'm told it just meant the world to the sheriffs to know that there was a group of people who loved and wanted to protect them. And we created a great big sign in which we said, this is, we're grateful that you serve and protect us. We wanted to serve and protect you. Oh, that's beautiful. Cool. That's wonderful. And then, and then something else. Uh, I mean, we, I, I've made masks for like hospice or the food bank. But one that I'm particularly fond of is the, the industry that I'm part of, uh, the meat industry, we are an essential, I mean, the government says that we're an essential industry and that we have to keep going. So I've been making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of masks, but with a twist. I make them, well, starting with the executives and you know, they're, they're working like crazy. And it's, it's a really tough time for them because there, there's so many things that are going on that you wouldn't guess to get it right. Uh, I made Jan Perdue, uh, my stepdaughter-in-law, she and I, we made masks for the spouses with the idea that we, we knew that they were under a lot of stress and that they should be recognized too. And I bet we've made a couple of hundred of these. Great. That is fantastic, Mitzi. And, and the feedback that I get is, you know, to know that they're, um, that they're handmade. I mean, not handmade. They are hand... What am I trying to say? They are made at home. Uh, we didn't just, you know, write a check. No, these were sewn by us with love. Yeah, they're personally made by you. Yes. That's great. That's really, really wonderful. And it's carrying out something that Frank Perdue used to say. Frank created something called an ethical will. And that's also in, in the book, How to Be Up and Down Times. An ethical will is, you know, towards the end of your days, you'd really like those who come after you to have happy, good, fulfilled lives. I mean, what you'd really like for those who come after you is for them to look back on their days and say, I led a good life. Well, what are the values that would get them there? And 
Frank, you know, he had, he had Parkinson's, so he knew his days were numbered. And five years before his passing, he and I spent three days, you know, just total immersion in this project, figuring out what values will help keep people have happy, fulfilled, good lives. And we came up with 50. We decided that 50 is too many, that nobody remembers 50. We narrowed it down to 10. And number six in, in this is, is one that, I, I mean, I cherish them all, but this one certainly is on my mind at the moment. If you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. So true. So true. I, I think of that often. Think what you can do for others. And especially if you're feeling a little bit blue or a little discouraged or kind of down, just stop and think what you can do for other people. And I totally agree with that, Mitzi. I'm going to interrupt this interview for a second and ask you if you are struggling with any challenges in your life. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety or maybe you're struggling with weight loss. You just can't lose the weight that you know you need to lose. Or maybe you have some other challenges like you're trying to quit smoking. Reach out to me. I can help you and I can help you with hypnosis. I am now a registered hypnotist through the Cascade Hypnosis Center, which I always appreciate. They are our sponsor, and Erica Flint is the teacher and the CEO, and she's amazing. Well, I can help you. So if you're working on any of these kinds of challenges, reach out to me. We'll jump on a call for 45 minutes, a free exploratory call, and just email me, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com, and put stand up now in the subject line because Stand Up Now is the name of my business where I do my coaching and my hypnosis. So reach out to me. We will make great progress. And you will look back and you'll wonder how you ever existed when things were so tough because now you've put those challenges behind you and you've now moved on from those mind blocks, from those those challenges that were holding you back. So I look forward to hearing from you. And now back to Mitzi. Well, that's what these masks are all about because uh, when I'm sewing one, I'm thinking, yeah, this is going to protect people. This is going to let them know that that somebody cares about them and thinks they're important enough to sew it. Uh, you know, it, 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 I actually, I was going to say, I think, but instead I'm going to withdraw that and say, I know it means a lot to them. And I know because I get all these wonderful emails thanking me. <laughs> ah, great. And, and I don't do it for the thanks, but it's very validating to know that, that somebody gets the message that I'm sending because, you know, in my, I feel a lot of what we do in life is symbolic. And, you know, this, you know, it'd be really nice if, if it saves somebody from getting sick. I don't know whether it will or not, but I can know that the symbolism of somebody taking, it takes half an hour to sew one of these. There are like uh, 12 different steps to it because it's lined and it's, uh, you know, there's just all sorts of parts to it to get it right. Uh, they take about, well, 26 minutes. Uh, and I think it's obvious when you get one where there's hand sewing, there's it that the people who get it can tell that somebody put some thought and love and effort into it. I'm sure they they can tell that. Is there any way our listeners can can order a face mask? Is there any way to do that? Huh, I hadn't thought of that because so far they've just been uh, you know like hospice volunteers or. Sure. Well, that's I don't okay. Know if wanted, no, if they wanted to make a donation to uh, uh, the anti-trafficking organization, it's tax deductible. What about? I'll I'll give you how to get hold of it. Okay. And it's uh, it's text WTF. Yes. And we'll get into what that's all about. It's the initials of win this fight, but there's more to it than that. Text WTF to fifty one. And if you do that and you make a donation of any amount, uh, when you text WTF, that will take you, well, maybe we could make it more direct. Uh, if you go to winthisfight.org, there will be a place to donate. 
and a donation of any amount, I'll send you a homestone mask. Oh, now that's a wonderful offer. Winthisfight.com, am I right? Oh, well, actually it's .org. Oh, .org, okay. Winthisfight.org, make a donation, and then let you know that you've made a donation, and then you'll send a mask. And, and how do we let you know that we've made a donation? Because whenever a donation, I will please include your address. Um, but whenever anybody makes a donation, I know about it within maybe 32 seconds. Oh, well, that's fast. Well, I that segues right into the next question, and that is how did you get involved, Mitzi, in human trafficking, stopping human trafficking? Tell us how that became a passion of yours. Well, I'm... I'm 79 now, but at age 78, which is a year and a half ago, I heard a lecture on human trafficking. And up until April 11th of last year, the words human trafficking just didn't mean that much to me. I mean, they just sort of glide right on by. It was just words. But then I heard about a little girl. I actually got to meet her eventually, who at age 14, she was lured into being trafficked. Uh, she thought, that she'd met the love of her life. And uh, guess what? He was a trafficker. And when she tried to get away from him, he said, I know where your mother lives and I know all about your little baby brother. And if you even try to leave me, I'll kill both of them. Oh my God. And I won't just kill them, it will be slow and painful. Well, once she was trafficked, she was forced to have sex with strangers. And how about that that's rape? like 12 or 15 times a night. And if she didn't make her quota, which, uh, which her initial quota was $500 a night, eventually it's a thousand would be more likely today, should be beaten or starved. And you know, that a little girl at 14 would have to have sex with strangers 12 times a night. And it just seemed like the most monstrous thing. And I did a little calculation in my head and that means effectively being raped more than 3,000 times a year. Oh. She was in it for four years. And you know, her case alone would change my life, make me want to do something about it. But take a look at the scale of this thing. According to the United Nations, there are 40 million people who are, who are in slavery. I mean, 40 million. That's the population of California, every man, woman, and child in California in slavery. Wow. And as for sex trafficking, there are 8 million people who are being sex trafficked, and a million of those are children. So hearing this kind of thing, I just thought, I'm ready to devote the rest of my life to doing everything I can to prevent it. And would you like to know my approach? Well, of course I would. I definitely I would. So I really did hope so. I I love and endorse every approach to anti-trafficking and the you know, summer prevention, which is just a fabulous thing. Some and preventing people because the traffickers go after the vulnerable. So if you're L, I, I want to get this right. L B, G T Q. Um, it, you're, the traffickers love you and they want you. Okay. Uh, if you're if you're a runaway, the traffickers are after you. If 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 you're homeless, so anything that can prevent people from being vulnerable, oh, I love, I endorse it. It's not my approach. Another is rescue, and there there are important, valuable, wonderful groups that are into rescuing them. And then there's rehabilitation, trying to help people who have been trafficked to get back to a life that's almost normal. Okay, so I love every one of these approaches, mine is somewhat different. The approach that I have, and it's it's kind of beginning, but here, I, for me, trafficking is, there's an evil equation that describes it. <clears throat> and the evil equation is just obscene profits equal unimaginable suffering. And here's what the obscene profits are. I mentioned Mindy, the girl that at 14 was lured into being trafficked. Right. Her trafficker, we're talking New York, New York City. Her traffic had four girls in his, what he called his stable. Uh. His profits, tax-free, 
were a million dollars a year. Wow. And Mindy didn't see a penny of it. All the money that he got to play with was off of her suffering. But, all right, that's one person, but since there are 40 million of them, what does that mean for the profits of traffickers globally? Well, again, according to the United Nations, it's a $150 billion industry. It's the second biggest source of income for criminal activity. I mean, only, only illegal drugs has more. So $150 billion. Well, why are they in it? Why, why are the traffickers in it? And the answer in almost every case is, I can tell you in one word, money. Now, I, I have to have a little sidetrack to tell a, a background of, of what I'm proposing. Oh, please do, yes. Thank you. I'm, I'm always so afraid of monologuing because it's so rude to monologue. But here goes. No, I want to hear it. Okay. There's, imagine that you're one of the largest software companies in the world. And I know the name of the company, but I don't want to get in trouble with them for telling their secrets. So we're going to call it Softco. Okay. A decade or, well, maybe a decade and a half ago, Softco was in a terrible situation because counterfeiters could could just at will, you know, break into their to their software programs and duplicate them, counterfeit them, and then sell them, you know, at a discount. But they were making tens of millions of dollars, and Softco could go after the individual counterfeiter and maybe even put them in jail. But another counterfeiter would, yeah. You know, there was so much money to be made with so little effort mm-hmm. that the counterfeiter. You, you knock out one and another one pops up. It's, it's whack-a-mole. Right. Until a guy whom I take to be a total genius, his name's Gary Miller, and he's out of London. He's a lawyer. He suggested to Softco that they try a different strategy. That jail, you know, it's a deterrent, but it wasn't enough of a deterrent. Instead, he proposed that using some very high tech like artificial intelligence and big data and uh, dark web ability to, to, to trace money flows, that they find out where the traffickers were banking. And the, banker, the, the, the bad guys do everything that they can to hide where they're banking. But if you've got the capabilities that Gary Miller and his colleagues have, you could trace where they were banking. And what they'd do would be, they would suddenly just spring on the bank, completely irrefutable proof that Mr. X's account is full of hot money stolen from Softco. Mm -hmm. The banks have every incentive in the world to seize and freeze. I think I've got it backwards, freeze and seize the money. Mm -hmm. And they, they don't fight about it because the banks don't want to be caught laundering money. Uh, yeah, it's it's a reputational issue, and banks need a good reputation. Of I mean, do anything for a good reputation. But on top of that, if, if they if they weren't cooperative, they'd be up against terrible fines. I mean, they could even be put out of business. So when when Gary Miller and his colleagues could could trace counterfeiters' money into bank accounts, they could shut them down, and they could make restitution to Softco. Softco was finding that for every dollar they invested in this freeze and squeeze, freeze, seize and squeeze, they could get 20 to $30 back. So it was just economically just fabulous for Softco to attack the counterfeiters through their money. Because now imagine, uh, I hope this is unimaginable, but try anyway. Imagine that you're a bad guy, you're a counterfeiter. Yes. And You've got a whole ecosystem of accountants and lawyers and secretaries, and you've got this operation that's bringing in millions of dollars. You have expenses, right? Yes. And then suddenly your bank account's frozen. It's really painful for you because first, all that money that you thought was yours, uh, it's gone. So all the effort that you put into counterfeiting, I mean, it's not available to you anymore. But on top of that, you've got all these people who are working with you that you have to pay. I mean, it becomes extraordinarily painful when you freeze and seize and eventually squeeze. The squeeze part is 
uh, there, the Gary Miller and his friends were you know, working hand in glove with local law enforcement. And law enforcement, is, if I understand this correctly, would be able to squeeze the, uh, the counterfeiters saying, you know, we can make it, you've done something highly illegal and we've taken your money, but we can strike a deal with you of maybe a less severe punishment if you'll go to who else has worked with you and is doing the same thing. And in, in, a, in a fairly short time, Softco was simply able to end the counterfeiting problem. Cool? Very cool. What if we could do the same thing with the traffickers? Yes. Because with $150 billion at stake, the money flows are almost inconceivable. And you don't, I mean, if, if one trafficker, like Mindy's trafficker, was making a million dollars a year, that kind of money, it leaves traces. And so you might wonder, why hasn't it been done yet? Yeah. Why indeed? Well, because local law enforcement, they, what I'm about to describe, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens, how about the overwhelming majority of the time? Local law enforcement, the funds that they have are really stretched thin dealing with local problems like murders, rapes, arson, whatever else is local. So they, they don't have a whole lot of funds to devote to a global problem. And by the way, there are exceptions, but in general, law enforcement doesn't have the funds to take this on. They may not have the expertise and uh, they may not have the political will because you have to have local people demanding of law enforcement that they take this on. And until, until there's a local demand for it, the law enforcement is motivated to do what, what the local uh, constituency wants. So if, if, if local law enforcement doesn't have the funds and it may not have the political will and it may not have the expertise, who's gonna step up and do it? Well, in the case of Softco, Softco gets lots of money back from shutting down the counterfeiters, but there isn't one great big organization that would be in the position of Softco to fund the, uh, this effort to seize, I keep getting it backwards, freeze, seize, and squeeze. There, you need a, an organization probably funded, I don't know how much it would take, but I'm, I'm gonna guess it's in the millions. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you could shut down one of the worst scourges in, in exists in the world, and you're not, it would take a lot of fine tuning and you're not gonna get everybody, but you could make a real dent in it if you could interfere with their profits. Yes. And so here's what I'm trying to do. Uh, the International Fraud Group, which consists of, of people who have expertise in, in tracing money flows, and they've got so much knowledge that we can't even dream of, but how to operate in the dark web and how to trace stuff. Uh, they operate in 46 countries. They're, they're very enthusiastic, I mean, about doing what they could to shut down human trafficking. If we could create an organization that would like hire retired special ops people or FBI people or people who have the expertise, but that would take an organization that would need to be funded. How do you get the funding? And here's my plan. And if anybody in anybody in our audience can can help me, uh, please do. And again, it's text WTF to five one five five five. I want to create a TED talk in which I describe the same kind of thing that I've been sharing with you just now. If I could create a really amazing TED talk telling about you know, what the world has to gain if they would fund such an organization, here's, here's my dream. What if I could get 5 million people to view that, to view, to view that TED talk? That would give me the standing to go call on, I mean, this is aspirational. Don't don't take it literally. It's it's dreaming. Yes. But imagine if if I had five million people who were interested and thought this was a good idea, and you know checked it off in the at the TED talk that I had those that many views. I'd have the standing to call on, and again, I'm being aspirational, on a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates. Yes. And the 
Yeah. What organization wouldn't like to be the one that helps stop human trafficking? For sure. Okay, now, I don't know that I can pull this off. Uh, if, if I think about it too hard, I realize it's insanity to even be trying. But then I think, why not? Why not? That's right. That's right. In fact, allow me to quote Mother Teresa again. Please do. It, uh, she said something that sort of guides my life, and it's the following. It's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of a problem. The good that we can do, we must do. And you know, if I can do this, then I must do it. It's immoral to be discouraged by the... Magnitude of a problem. Magnitude of a problem. Just imagine that it's, it, it's immoral. That's that's a really powerful statement. And it, but, but, but I agree with it. Yeah. Because, uh, th- then let me tell you where it comes from uh, in her biography. She, do we have time? Yes. I, I don't want to... Yes, we do. Okay. Yay. okay, Mother Teresa. She got her start in India. And she was, she was a teacher. And she was in a convent. And it was, I mean, in her own words, it was a fairly nice life. She had three meals a day. It was clean. But she petitioned her superior to go out and leave her beautiful convent and work with lepers. And her superior initially refused because he said, you can't make any difference. There are 10,000 lepers a day who die and you can only take care of a few of them. Uh, No, stay back in the convent and teach children. And her answer was, it's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of a problem that 10,000 lepers die a day. And maybe it's a week, I forget, but Large numbers of lepers are dying every day. You can't help all of them. But the ones that you can help, it's going to mean, mean the world to them. So her, her response was, it's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of a problem. The good that we can do, we must do. Wow, that is really powerful. And I thank you so much for passing it on because it's it's a very powerful statement for sure. Mitzi, as we move on in, in the interview, I haven't talked about this, but I always ask a question about bullying because I've worked in this field for over, well, it's almost 20 years now. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? Have you ever been bullied in your adult life or do you have any kind of story you can share with us? I can, but uh, it will be a little bit offbeat, but here goes. I mean, this is my own response that's worked for me. I mentioned that I'm 79 and I'm proud of it. I mean, I love being 79. Hey everybody, as you get older, it gets better. But anyway, I've worked since age 15, and I've almost my entire life been in careers that are non-traditional for women. I was a rice farmer, and by rice, uh, I mean that stuff that you eat with chopsticks. Uh, There were 5,000 men and about three women who were actively growing. I was a farm broadcaster, and there were 750 men and three women. Uh, I was a government and economics major in college, and I could be in classes with 200 men and me. And... As I think you might guess, as a woman who's sort of, I I was often the first woman who had been in any of these jobs. Oh, another one, I was was a a management intern with the treasury department, 21 men and me for a year and a half. And you can imagine that a lot of bullying came my way. Yeah, so how did I handle it? And here's where it gets a little bit offbeat, but Oh, I don't, I mean, this is so interior, but here's, here's what it was. Uh, If you criticize me in some way and it's going to make me better, I embrace it. I love it. I'll act on it. If you're just bullying me, if you're being critical for the sake of, you think you can get away with it, you don't exist for me. You just don't exist. I'm not going to let you get under my skin. I'm not, uh, you don't exist. So you just didn't react to it. Uh, I, I remember once, uh, I, it, it was an abortive directors meeting 
and it was a group, well, I won't identify the group, but at the end of it, am I allowed to use somewhat bad language? Yes, you are. Okay. At the end of it, there were several people who were really hostile to me. I mean, uh, well, I'll express how hostile they were. At the end of it, a woman came up to me and she said, how could you stand being dragged through that shithole? And I was thinking afterwards, um, I didn't take it personally for one second. I just felt that anybody who was being really hostile and uh, dragging me through a shithole, I didn't take it personally. Instead, I thought, wow, have I learned a lot about what they're really like? You know, it would have taken me years to realize what motivates them and what kind of people they are. But watching how they performed in this board of directors meeting, hey guys, I got your number. Yeah, that tells you everything. Yeah, but but I, I, I didn't suffer for a millisecond over what my friend thought was, how did you stand, how did, how did you survive? No, honest, I, I swear to eternity that it didn't bother me. Yeah. That's that's because wonderful. because I mean to me it was just sort of clinical. You're revealing who you are. Yeah, you're, you're not anything about me. Yeah, that's right. It means it's nothing about you. It's all about the person that's dishing that behavior out. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm a little afraid confessing that because I um, I don't want to sound arrogant, but this is what's gotten me through a career in non-traditional fields. Well, it's a it's a very good piece of advice, piece of information. So thanks for sharing that, Mitzi. I really appreciate it. I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Mitzi. So each question, just 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first question. Who is one person that has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Oh, my heroine is, is Mother Teresa. I, I read all I can about her, and so... I would say that that her attitudes, I mean, the Buddhists say that attitude is everything and her attitude of things that lead to a feast of unending joy, I, it's her. Right. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Mitzi? I'm, I've loved the idea of controlling emotions. And of course, some you absolutely can't. I mean, you have a child who's ill. I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. Um, but of, of art, ordinary garden variety things, I almost think it's a question of will. Do I let that get to me? Or do I say, that's his problem, that's her problem. Mitzi, I want to ask you about the topic of breathing. And if you have any, any insight into how breathing helps you in the world of mindfulness. Breathing, I, I consider it so important that I've actually been taking lessons with a voice coach about deep breathing. And, you know, when, when things are really tough, if you can take a deep breath and then watch, my, my breath is purple in my imagination, and you breathe it out, and it's purple. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it takes away tension and other stuff. It definitely does. Yeah, I completely agree with you. If there was a book related to mindfulness that you could recommend, I mean, your book has a lot of elements of mindfulness in it, your book, How to Be Up in Down Times. Are there any other books you could recommend that are related to mindfulness? I kind of think that almost everything that Mark Victor Hansen writes would be an example, but the latest one is Ask, and it, it it's a mindset of abundance, of that have, have enough care for yourself and belief in yourself to ask for what you want. And I agree with you. That is an excellent book. I recently had Mark on the show and we talked about that book and it is really powerful. And at first I'm kind of like, oh, I'm really curious about what this book is going to contain when it's simply called Ask, but it was well worth the read. So thanks for that recommendation. Are there any apps, Mitzi, that you could recommend that can help with mindfulness? I should explore that because let me think if there's any that I use right now. Uh, no, that's something I got to work on. Okay, well. Oh, can I turn it around and, and ask for a recommendation? Of course. 
Well, an app that I use a lot is Insight Timer. Insight Timer is a wonderful app and it has all kinds of people on there who meditate and who can teach meditation. And I have some meditations on there myself. And it's a free app, but you can, there's also a paid uh, side of it that you can do if you want to. But it's a wonderful app, I think. So that would be my recommendation. Would you say the name once more? Yeah, Insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, Insight Timer. Wow. It's a great app. Well, uh, as as soon as as soon as we say goodbye to each other, I'm I'm going to go for it. Oh, good. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us about your new book. It's an excellent book, and so Mindful Tribe, I really encourage you to get your hands on how to be up in down times. And Mitzi, we've talked so much about these different topics, human trafficking and so on. And I know that your website is mitziperdue.com, M-I-T-Z-I, and I say Z because I'm in Canada, so it's I'll try that again for those of you who aren't. M-I-T-Z-I-P-E-R-D-U-E dot com. So, Mitzi, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing all of your wisdom and expertise that you've shared with us today. It's been pure joy. I loved every second of it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening, Mindful Tribe. And here's a shout out to our sponsor, the Cascade Hypnosis Center at CascadeHypnosisCenter.com. Maybe you're a coach, maybe you're a healer, maybe you'd just love to help other people. Now you can. You can sign up for training at the Cascade Hypnosis Center and Erica will do an amazing job. And I can tell you that because I have gone through the training. She's absolutely fantastic and she has a great team behind her so consider it think about learning to be a hypnotist because you can truly help change the lives of people who can live a more fulfilled life because of what you have done to help them with their mindset so take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode